Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nimity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. You're listening to Serious Privacy by Trustark. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbarth and Kay Royal. A few weeks ago, we spoke to Jared Cosilia about recruiting for functions in privacy. Today, we look at the other side. What is it like for somebody to get started in privacy not by sheer coincidence, like Kay and myself did many, many years ago, but by deliberate choice. Not many years ago. (laughs) Where do you get this crazy idea that a privacy career might be fun? What steps do you take? And what is it like to start in privacy and data protection in 2020? Our guest today is a Chicago-based lawyer who identifies as Irish and American. In his own words, he has a long history in computers, electronics, radio, and technology, And since this year, privacy plays an important role in his work life. If only looking at the impressive number of IAPP qualifications he obtained since the start of the corona crisis. Enough to talk about, I should think. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. So today's guest, as Paul so eloquently introduced his experience, Tom joined me what, about a month ago, Tom, for the open sure. mic session that we did? That was fun. Which didn't receive as many listens as it should because two days later we did the Shrimps decision live <laughs> the day it came out. So anyway, we need to hype that one up a little bit because there were seven privacy professionals on there and y'all were fantastic. But during that session... It's true. Go listen to it. It's in our backlog. So just... Download it and, and listen we'll to it. We'll actually tag it. That way y'all can y'all can go listen to it because it was quite the feat to organize seven people at once without editing audio like crazy. But during that, some people made a comment that one of the challenges they're facing in privacy is all the new people that are in privacy. And not that new people are bad, but the comment was more along the line of it's offering a new wave of challenges because most of their knowledge is coming from book knowledge. So I'll just be frank. It's like having a new attorney thinking they know everything about litigation. It's not a fault of the person. It's just a fault of the circumstances. You're new. You've got a lot of education. And you made the point that you're one of the newbies. Absolutely. But yet you're an experienced attorney. Absolutely. And I found that fascinating, which is why I wanted to talk to you and, and have this session. Why did you get into privacy? Ho, 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 ho. Why do you start with a serious question? <laughs> oh, we forgot the unexpected question. Oh, crud. Okay, fine, fine, fine. Here's the unexpected question. What is your favorite snack food, Tom? My favorite snack food is fruit, strawberries, peaches, oranges, whatever's fresh. And we do have a lot of fresh produce in Chicago, but I love to be healthy and I love to snack on good stuff. 
That makes no sense to me. <laughs> People on audio, you should see Case face when Tom gave that answer. Absolutely does not compute. Well, there's nothing wrong with making it a little unhealthy. You could add a little bit of chocolate and, and cover your strawberries and oranges with some kind of a fondue or something. So yeah, that's magical words. Magical words. Well. All right, Paul, what's your favorite <laughs> snack food? Well, then I would go to savory and I would, being Dutch, I mean, I have to go for bitterballen. What the heck what is, is bitterballen? <laughs> well, Tom, you, you have been in the Netherlands. Didn't they feed you bitterballen? No, I didn't. They're, deep, they're deep fried. And it's basically like a very small meat croquette, but then round, filled usually with a beef stew kind of uh, filling. And they are very traditional here as bar food. Wow. Where in the U.S. you would probably order tons of chicken wings with sauces. We get bitter ballen, bitter bowls, and you eat them with mustard. Some people eat them with mayonnaise, but usually it's mustard. And that's what you get. Okay, that's on my list. Okay, we need to do a <laughs> cultural exchange. You mail me some of those vini vini duni things. Bitter and Those. You're going to have to spell it for me, and I'll send you some deep-fried Twinkies. Oh, that sounds good. What's too. that? <laughs> exactly what it sounds Now we really have the cultural differences here, people. <laughs> okay, for the record, I've never eaten a deep-fried Twinkie. But you know what a Twinkie is? No. It, a Twinkie oh. is like a a small cake snack that comes individual. So it's like a little cake. It's got a cream filling, and it usually have a frosting on the top. So Twinkies are a very popular, prevalent American snack food. I can't have them anymore, um, finding out I'm celiac. But in the South, they deep fry them. But you deep fry With, everything. Yeah, they fry every Exactly. They fry everything. So... My favorite snack is not deep-fried Twinkies. I'd have to say my go-to is chocolate, but believe it or not, when people ask, is your favorite snack sweet or salty, and I love Paul's answer of savory, mm -hmm. my is both. I'm the the typical, I want my popcorn with my M&Ms. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I like I sweet and salty. That. I understand that. I like the combination as well. That's yeah. why salted caramel is working so well for me. Yes, you guys right are making now, me my hungry. To snack for work has been what is it they call? I think they call it sweet and salty kettle corn, mm. and so it's kind of like a light cracker jack. Hmm. But it's okay. almost healthy, Tom. Yeah, that sounds it's, good. It's popcorn. Nothing wrong with that. Popcorn's great for you. That's a good natural <laughs> snack until you load it up with butter and salt and and sweet and sweet stuff. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Why do we always end up talking about food? It's a good icebreaker, Paul. Exactly. Maybe we should do a food podcast instead. <laughs> All right. So let's get back to the question then. Okay. So I also want to get into what your experience is as an attorney, but... What what brought you to privacy? Why privacy? So first of all, I've been in privacy for about 20 years. And let me tell you about that. I've been in privacy because my primary task as an attorney for 20 years has been estate planning. I'm an estate planning lawyer. So I help people get their affairs in order. And in the United States context, that largely involves keeping it private, keeping it out of the probate court, keeping it away from prying eyes of family, friends, uh, any other nosy people that might want to get their face in your business. My task of planning has largely been accomplished through the use of private trusts of one form or another. And so I like to say I've been in privacy for the entirety of my career for 20 years. 
But um, the more immediate transition, I might say, into consumer-oriented privacy or privacy du jour, privacy of the day involving surveillance, ad tracking, and that sort of thing, that has been a result of me tinkering with my practice, as many entrepreneur lawyers have a tendency to do, tinkering, looking for other ways to serve my constituency. And as Paul mentioned, I'm a big tech fan. I'm, I'm on top of all the latest apps and you know computers and whatever's out there. And I have personal recognition over the past couple of years that uh, our privacy has been invaded. I mean, it's really no secret to that really think about it, about how much information we're giving away through computer programs, phone apps, and that sort of thing. So I took that uh, interest in privacy and tried to tinker with my career a little bit and help me be a, a better service to my clientele, who oftentimes do raise the issues of privacy. You know, what other ways can we look at our, our affairs and keep them under wraps so that um, we're protected? And so that was kind of a lingering interest of mine. And then COVID hit and my career, my practice, like a lot of people's took a hit because um, just the world is we're no longer as easily able to get out to network and, and, you know, people have different things going on. And so I needed a little something else to do. And that's where somehow I came upon the IAPP, which I can't say enough about. I just looked at their website and found or discovered this incredible community of people that are uh, laser targeted on the different ways that uh, our privacy is being invaded and attacked. And so that was kind of a, a rabbit hole moment for me when I discovered IAPP and, and just started going off in different directions with them. And that was really the genesis of my uh, current interest. And, and that's how I got to know you guys. Impressive. So COVID did push you into privacy. Yeah, I think we all had a lot of time to evaluate who we are, where we're going, and give us an incredible amount of, of at least in my case, it's been focus. And I took that occasion to uh, study up on privacy with the idea of enhancing the services that I provide to my own clients by uh, being knowledgeable about the different uh, attacks on our privacy and what we can do to protect ourselves. I've been, I'm a avid reader. I, I don't, you know, let grass grow. I like to dig my nose into something. And and for me, it's been a lot of books. Starting, I think the, the pinnacle book for me was Age of Surveillance Capitalism by uh, Sasha Zuboff. And that was a 500-page, I don't know, just an incredible encyclopedia, which I highly recommend to anybody. And it just, it was my rabbit hole. And I think the overriding conclusion of that book was Be the Resistance. Find something that you can do personally to be the resistance to, to stop these uh, intrusions on our privacy. And so starting with that book, I just expanded uh, to others. And next thing you know, I've read about a dozen different things on privacy, reached out to the IAPP, learned about their different certifications. And then I completed them all. Completed most of them. I have one more to go, the Asian one. And they just came up with a new one that I can't get before I learn French. They've come up with a French privacy certification. So I have to study up on my French skills before I can get that. I want the Asian one, too. That, that's been on my list. But these certifications are an excellent example of the depth and breadth of privacy issues that are affecting us globally. You know, every country is facing different challenges. I don't care whether you're in Europe, Asia, the United States, or Canada, and they all have slightly different approaches to solving the problem. And so that's why it's really critical, especially when you're dealing with a global clientele, is to be able to study these laws and understand, you know, where to point people for compliance. So I didn't realize, I, I, I get the, the history and the career in privacy, but 
I didn't realize you were that new to actually focusing on privacy, having started during COVID. Yeah, absolutely. So that is pretty fascinating. What do you find most challenging? And I'm going to call it a new career in privacy, despite the experience that relates to privacy. What do you find most challenging about being an experienced professional transitioning into the field? Well, I think it's like anything, as we experienced on the podcast of a couple of weeks ago, there is a prevailing attitude that if you haven't been doing this for 5, 10, 15 years, that you may not have as much to offer as people that are experienced professionals in it. And that's that's also painting with a broad brush. During the last podcast, I was complaining that the person who said that was painting a too broad of a brush for new people. And, and so perhaps I'm painting the same broad brush as to the experienced folks, but it is a challenge to bring the two together. And that's always been a challenge, not only in the legal profession, but in computers, engineering, whatever, the ability to mentor and to bring in new people and to enhance the profession with new ideas is always a challenge. And it's not an insurmountable challenge. It's an exciting challenge to those that are willing Willing to take up the call. So if I did have to say there's been any you know, particular obstacles, it has been a mindset. For instance, I've been out there looking for a position. I'd like to maybe transition my entire career into privacy. And I'm looking at a lot of job ads that are asking for people with you know, 10, 15 years of experience in, in privacy or 10 years experience in GDPR, which hasn't even been around for that long. So the, Yeah, that's always funny to see. It's, it's really kind of interesting to see. And it's very frustrating when they write job descriptions looking for new talent, but they want only the best and they're only willing to pay for the least. And so it's, it's kind of a paradox there in and of itself, but, but it's definitely a challenge. Yes. I agree with you that there is that prevailing attitude that if you're new, you don't have much to offer or you're actually hurting some circumstances, but you know, how do I be brutally honest here, but be, be yourself frank at the same time. Sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not. I mean, it's the curse of being new into any field. Think of a new police officer or a new nurse or a new doctor. It's always the, okay, I've got all of this education. I know what I'm doing now, but yet you don't have the hands-on experience to back it up. But there will always, always be those people that the career is natural to them. So they actually pick it up faster than a lot of people. And somehow or another, I really do feel like I'm explaining this wrong because I don't want to get the impression that I think that new people in privacy don't know what they're doing because they do. Every single one of them I've met that is new into privacy, whether they're transitioning from another career field or whether they're literally fresh out of college and privacy is what they wanted to do. They're gifted, they're talented, they're knowledgeable, they're eager, they're passionate. This is not a field you go into to make money. Right. We've talked about that before. This is a field you go into because you're drawn to the field, whether you're coming from IT or information security or however it is you get here. But there's always going to be that contradiction between now I have knowledge but not hands-on experience and how do I get the hands-on experience and people with more experience looking going wow you don't have the hands-on experience it doesn't mean they're not capable of their jobs they're fully fully capable but what would you advise to those of us 
I don't think Paul and I would fall into this category, but maybe we do. What would you advise to those privacy veterans about accepting new people into the field without having that default response that, oh, wow, they're new. They don't know what they're doing because they do. Sure. I have not personally experienced a lot of um, resistance to my path into privacy just because I have a little different take on it. I mean, I show up at the door ready, willing, and able to work on a project, and I find people that have things to do, and I, I offer to assist in that. So to that extent, I to the extent that an, an experienced privacy professional in whatever environment can offer opportunities for newcomers to come in and be of assistance, there's all kinds of opportunities for internships that could be made available or project-based work because everybody has their plate full with about a dozen different projects that they're working on. And wouldn't it be cool if somebody came in ready, willing, and able to help out on that and you had an opportunity to give that person a chance to show their worth, especially in something that they're excited and passionate about. So I've been I've had some success with that. And I think that's probably the most critical thing if we want to enhance and improve the, the profession and bring more people into it is providing mm-hmm. those kinds of opportunities. Because it's a great chance for people to get known. And you know that applies to internships, it applies to volunteer work, it applies to conferences. Anytime you can provide openings for people to show who they are, introduce themselves and demonstrate their c- capabilities would be awesome. Well, it's not like we're having to fight them for jobs. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We don't have to fight among ourselves for jobs. There's tons of jobs out there. Yeah, it's a it's an incredibly growing field. And I was thinking about this earlier. Imagine what the field is going to be like when they really start enforcing the laws. We're really in the in the you know birth of privacy issues, and there's some great laws being implemented all over the globe, including some brand new ones. And they have great concepts, but the enforcement apparatus and, and the education and the knowledge of the people to whom the laws apply is an incredible task. And we're going to need hundreds, if not thousands, more practicing professionals to fully implement it. So, what does your ideal privacy career look like? I want to work on a project. I want to start something from scratch, whether it's working with a mid-sized company that recognizes the value of addressing privacy, not only as a compliance issue, but as a mechanism to build trust of their customers and their clients. Somebody who's had the aha moment that wants somebody to come in and pretty much start something. Because I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a builder, I want to do something like that. I'm aware of a couple of instances where some new laws are coming into place and there's some huge potential to provide consultative services to the businesses for which those laws apply. And that's a perfect example of where I could slide in and you know, not have somebody reinvent the wheel each time, but have somebody that knows what they're doing, understands the basis of the law, and understands how to operationalize it. So that's kind of uh, my, right. my perfect and- I'm laughing because when we spoke to Jared, and you probably recognize this from the podcast, he said most of the privacy people he meets are builders. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, it's a mindset. It's a it's an entrepreneurial kind of thing, and it, you know, not everybody's that way. There's certainly people that are into research and analysis and you know, writing policies and that sort of thing. That, that's great. Yeah, that would be me. There's a place <laughs> for everybody. So it really depends on you know go where your heart is, follow your passion, and what you want to do. I've always admired entrepreneurs because I have no idea where I would start, but give me a ton of paper to analyze and I'm perfectly in my elements. And <laughs> some, of us have, 
some of us have entrepreneurism in our blood. Uh, I was thinking about this also recently from the day of my very first uh, paper route. You know, we're just we're just built into it. We're built to to provide a service, make people happy and, and get paid for it. And it's really cool. It starts at a young age and it stays with a lot of us forever. You are really telling the American story here, right? Starting uh, with a paper route <laughs> and then climbing up to the top corporate lawyer. There you go. There you go. It's really cool. I, I kind of think of it as, as me having ADD, but let's call it an entrepreneurial personality. There you go. That's, that's, the, way to, that's the way to put a positive spin and focus on it. So that's really cool. It, exactly. But I do like how that resonates with you because we've talked about how people get into privacy and it's always a different story. And now people are entering it purposefully. But even those that entered, entered it accidentally can look back over our careers and say, hey, I've actually been working and been interested in this for decades. Like you, you did estate planning and it's all about keeping something private. And you can go back and recognize some of these moments that should have given you a clue that this would be a good career field, but yet there wasn't much happening. Actually, there, there wasn't a privacy career field to get into. But you said something a few minutes ago about how there are new laws coming out. There are new events. And Paul, didn't you tell me that there's like the first class action in the Netherlands that's mm -hmm. going on? Yes, there is the first class action here in the Netherlands. It was launched last week and it is a group of lawyers, mainly a law firm and some scholars who have filed a complaint uh, against Oracle and Salesforce because they didn't want to have the, the obvious candidates, Google and Facebook, before the courts once more. They already received way too much attention. But this class action called the Privacy Collective um, alleges that Oracle and Salesforce built shadow profiles from people whenever they visit websites using uh, cookies and other tracking technologies, and that those shadow profiles are used for personalized advertising shared with numerous commercial partners without any transparency that this is happening. So they are asking for 500 euro in damages per person per company. So that could be a multi-million or even up to a billion euro class action. So are the calculations. And it is, it, it is an interesting development because class actions are not something that typically happens here in the Netherlands. But GDPR has opened up the possibility. It is implemented. It is part of, of our legal system now. So they are going to try it. There is also quite some criticism because there is a litigation funder behind the, uh, the whole initiative, a company called Insworth, that, that pays for all the legal fees and that stands to gain quite a lot of money, according to the Privacy Collective themselves, around 11% of the total gains if the court agrees with the class action in the end. So we'll have to see. This will take a few years. I expect that this will end up at the Court of Justice of the European Union uh, a few years down the line. But it is an interesting development because it is both GDPR and e-privacy. It is the first uh, class action of this scale and in this kind here in the Netherlands. So, And of course, against two very large international players. I wow. think it's fascinating. I wonder if the attorneys running class action suits for privacy consider themselves privacy attorneys or are they class action attorneys and it just happens to be a privacy case? Well, in this case, they are privacy attorneys. But I would assume that in, in most situations, 
where you get privacy class actions like the Marriott case that has been announced this morning in the UK, that those are real class action lawyers who hire some privacy expertise for part of the team to be part of the team. Tom, your thoughts? What would you think? I mean, you have the U.S. perspective. Well, I think that's more the norm in the United States. We see an incredible amount of class action lawsuits being used as a mechanism to enforce uh, privacy laws because I don't believe we have the state administrative functions really in place. I mean, California is certainly a leader in enacting the laws, but there really hasn't been much enforcement from the state, state, so to speak. But then you've got uh, class action privacy lawyers. The first name that comes to my mind is I think Jay Edelson, who litigated the Facebook case, uh, attaining huge awards for violation of the Illinois uh, Biometric uh, Privacy Act. And that's an incredible act that's given a lot of recourse to people. But it's mainly enforced, at least my impression is that it's being enforced through the class action bar and not by the state. And so that would be an interesting opportunity if the state were ever to uh, step up and and put in an enforcement, not only an enforcement mechanism, but an education mechanism, because that's a huge thing that's missing. A lot of firms don't realize there's the Biometric Privacy Act until they've got a knock on their door from a class action lawyer. And that's just not the way it should be. There needs to be more effort to educate you know, people and businesses. Uh, and that's kind of right. an example of what I'd like to talk about a little bit now is that I've been trying to do some consumer education projects through my own practice, through my own law practice, educating people about the challenges that are the attacks to their privacy. And so I've started this project called the Chicago Privacy Project to act, formally educate people on some of the principles that are out there. And I think that if we put more focus on education and let people know uh, specific steps that they can take to protect themselves rather than wait for the government to protect them, if we can build that interest and build that education, maybe we can have a more comprehensive approach at dealing with privacy issues. Oh, I like. I know that I was just reading a report, the Cisco 2020 benchmarking report. One of the things it talks about is how companies are now actually recognizing hard metrics in seeing value in privacy. And when I thought about that, I thought about the fact that how is value in privacy recognized for companies? And I think it's twofold. I think one's on the commercial side. You only hire a vendor if they have certain things in place, or you might lose an opportunity if you don't have certain things in place. But on the second side, the consumer education. Consumers are now more aware of companies processing their data and what that might mean to them, even if they're not aware of the sheer amount of data that's being collected, being shared, and being combined in different ways. I think we're starting to see a little bit of the public education being it's a just enough knowledge to be dangerous now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's going to take a while for that full education to take effect. And I can only relate it to HIPAA here in the United States. Everybody thinks they understand what HIPAA means. They think it means their medical data is absolutely (laughs) private and you can't share it anywhere else. And that's not quite what HIPAA means. So I'm afraid we're entering that when it comes to general privacy now is that people are learning a little bit about it. So I think a consumer education project is is probably absolutely needed in the era that we're in now. 
Yeah, I think it's really hitting the news a lot lately, um, particularly with when you start hearing about the president of the United States banning a major social media platform that millions of people love and use on a daily basis. People are starting to scratch their heads and say, why? What is the big deal with this? And then, you know, when they start to learn the the inherent risks and problems that they're giving away uh, their personal privacy, that these companies are building an advertising portfolio and then selling it to the highest bidder the moment we visit a website, you know, it's just it's a crazy uh, scenario that's behind the curtain. You can kind of uh, use the analogy of the Wizard of Oz. What's going on behind this curtain? And people are shocked, absolutely shocked at the spying that's taking place. And if you try- But they're fickle. What's that? They're fickle. They're fickle. Yeah, they, they don't have a, an understanding of the implications of it. And they're, it's, it's kind of a, a hidden agenda that's out there. And I think once it becomes a little more well-known, it's going to be- uh, it's going to hit the fan. Yeah, but but let's be honest, and I'm not really playing devil's advocate here. I, I'm really asking the question. People were outraged over the Cambridge Analytica scam. Mm-hmm. But they only took the time, in general, not everyone, only took the time to learn what was being prevalently, prevalently pushed out in social media about Cambridge Analytica. They weren't really doing their own research, which is what we find with a lot of social media now. You're just deluged with so much information, you can only skim the surface. But they were outraged about it. And it's also becoming very hard to to rely upon information. What What is correct? What information can you actually still rely upon? Right. And now they're not outraged about it. Yeah, it it ebbs and flows with popular opinion. It ebbs and flows with the news cycles. But I think as a general rule, the interest in privacy, especially when you start talking about election interference and challenges to our democracy, as a general level, these privacy issues are rising and becoming more, you know, more prevalent in our community dialogue. And I think you're going to continue to see that. But it's up to us, it's up to the privacy professionals to continue hammering that point home. And there's been some really wonderful initiatives to do that. People love documentaries, TV shows about these things. And one of my favorite shows is The Great Hack that talked about the Cambridge Analytica issue. Oh, yeah. Uh, There's a a Frontline episode that talks about artificial intelligence and the battle between the United States and China to be the leader of of artificial intelligence. So you get shows like that, you know, documentaries that bring these things to the forefront. You know, everybody's favorite 60 Minutes does episodes on it from time to time as well. And that really keeps the dialogue uh, going. And then, of course, you have your traditional scandals that come up, whether it's data breaches, you know, international... Toms, surveillance. Yeah. There's all kinds of stuff. We're, we're hit with it every day. And so that's why I say it's a growing issue. And the issue of consumer education is, is rising in importance because of that. Well, you see it in the UK now as well, because last week the, the exam results for, for school children were announced and they were much lower than everybody expected in many cases because a computer algorithm adjusted the, uh, the grades that were given by the, yeah. by the teachers themselves. And the algorithm apparently was wrongly created. But that discussion is still not over. But then you immediately see how much harm it can do in real life to real people. Because lots of students now cannot go study what they want or can no longer go to the university where they were already pre-admitted. Uh, because their final exam results don't reflect 
what they thought that they had achieved in their academic career so far. Yeah, so there was some kind of algorithm, automated processing applied to those uh, results in violation of the GDPR already. There's already laws against that, and yet we're not enforcing mm -hmm. it. So that's what goes back to my comments earlier. Imagine what's going to happen when we start enforcing, you know, educating people and enforcing them about these laws and what good it can do to prevent something like that from happening. And from that perspective, we need more court cases because it is impossible to only rely upon the regulators. I know they are all right. working very hard, but all of them are understaffed, are under budget. And even if they wanted to do, take up every single case and every single uh, thing that goes wrong in, the pri in, in privacy and protecting personal data, they are just not able to. So we also need to take individual and collective action in court to really set the standards. So I think we're coming full circle to a three-tiered approach. You need the regulatory approach, you need the consumer education approach, and you need the class action lawyers. Between those three paradigms applied to these privacy issues, I think we've got the bases covered. It just needs to be a more rounded approach and a more broad approach on an international basis because everybody's got these same issues coming up. These are the signs of our times. Well, it makes me think of, of two things. One is we've discussed a couple of times on the show, emperor, inter, I don't know why I can't talk this morning, interoperability um, among nations. Some of our speakers are very much in favor of it. Some of them have not been favor, in favor of it. So interoperability for privacy being a thing should we work towards that should we not should there be baselines so basic premises that are the same even if everything else around it is not but it also makes me go back to something very basic is what good are privacy notices then you mean those things that nobody reads exactly <laughs> i mean my, my children when they were teenagers asked me about that they're like, why, why do people write privacy notices if nobody reads them? I said, because we have to inform them what we're doing. She's like, yeah, but nobody reads them. I'm like, yeah, but we have to tell them. She's like, but what good does it do if they don't read them? And I'm like, I don't know, but we have to try. Do you have a better suggestion yeah. of how we can inform people without telling them? Indep Cartoons, videos, pictures, anything. Independent consumer education is the answer because you've just hit the nail on the head with dark patterns in privacy. You've got privacy notices. Oh, I'm just going to throw up some text on a screen and have somebody click agree. It's done. That's not privacy education. You've got other dark patterns, uh, surveillance by design or you know, intrusion by design where they put the bright, bold accept button in a bright color. And then if somebody wants a little more information, that's hidden in the little complaint box off in the corner that's difficult to see. You know, these are inherent problems uh, that people are responding to regulations by doing the least amount possible to cover them under the law, but they're really doing a disservice and, and building a lack of trust in the consumer. So you know, that's a whole separate issue. But I also want to talk to you about interoperability globally from the privacy perspective. We have the basic fair information principles. We have the OECD guidelines that are pretty universal in their in their application and interest 
But what, where the problem comes down is how do we create regulations? How do we create laws to actually implement these things? And we're seeing a huge conflict in there right now between the United States and, and Europe. Europe considers privacy this fundamental right that shall be held inviolate and you know all hell breaks loose when we violate that. And it's not as critical of an issue in the United States or especially in Asia or, or other places. It's not really held to be a, a human rights violation, even though in principle it is. So when we mm-hmm. start getting meeting the rubber to the road and implementing rules and regulations, it's creating a conflict because of the differing interpretations of these principles. And it's creating an econ- economic conflict. You know, Lord knows what's going to happen as we move forward with the uh, the privacy shield number three. <laughs> it's, it's just crazy trying to reconcile the different approaches to these regulations. And it almost goes back to maybe we need to take a step back and look at the overall guidelines and work more on education and work more on uh, helping people to help themselves rather than wait for the government to come in and, and, and take action. And at the same time, that is exactly what the fundamental rights approach prevents us from doing to a certain extent because people have those rights, they are inalienable, so everybody should be protected whether they want it or not. So that that is also, you have your right to life, you have your right to health, you have your right to privacy and data protection, and the government should protect those, whatever it takes. Big brother in a good way? More well, like the big sister putting their arm around you. We need we need to find the balance of all these things, and that's really the difficult time time problem. It is, but I also but think we balance, need a much I mean, bigger international frank. dialogue on on these issues. Yeah. So far, <laughs> the international issues are about the economy, about the economy, about the economy, and in recent years, finally, a bit about climate change. But the the prevalent topics between world leaders whenever they meet is about how to how to prevent war, how to deal with oil and, and how to make more money all around the world. And I think that also the, the, the human rights perspectives, like protecting who we are and, and allowing people to develop their lives into who they want to be, who they want to become, allowing them to make fundamental changes to their career, like like you've done earlier this year, saying, I'm going to take a completely different direction. That should be possible. And I also think that world leaders should talk a bit more about those kind of topics. Well, it's happening with the huge dialogue in social justice in the United States, uh, in Asia, in China. There are definitely some human rights issues that are incredibly tied to privacy, surveillance, and, and those are definitely on the forefront if you if you look and find them. It, it's just kind of crazy that it, it goes with the news cycle. The problems don't go away. It's just that the publicity uh, differs <laughs> from time to time, and we have to make sure that we keep those critical uh, human rights issues at the forefront of our of our field as well but it's still very antagonistic it's um telling others what not to do and i know that from the european perspective we're doing the same you try to see it my way that my former commissioner jacob Kunstam, when i was still at the dutch tpa try, quoted the beatles quite a lot and he was always singing we can work it out in in the privacy community because trying to see it my way will help we need to build bridges across all of the all of the regions and not just by telling other people no you are wrong in how you see it but trying to work towards solutions and i i do believe that we're not doing that enough there's always room for improvement 
Yeah, two things. Shout out to both Pedro and Travis. So let's just do that. Shout out to both of those. But the second being, you talk about when world leaders come together, what they focus on are war, oil, and money. Are we going to see when the light bulb goes off and they recognize that personal data, okay, maybe it's not bigger than war, but it's a bigger product, byproduct, perhaps a problem growing it's bigger than than oil, and it's going to be. It's one of the biggest sources of money and economy. It impacts all mm-hmm. those things. Yeah, I can only hope. I think there's going to be a light bulb that's going to have to go out because if if even if we're going to relate it to the economy, if we're going to relate it to contentions between countries, if we're going to relate it to global commerce, I mean, data, data is bigger than all of us. It prevent it presents some incredible challenges, but it also presents some incredible opportunities to deal with some of the world's problems. You know, whether you're talking about climate change or social justice, a lot of these things can benefit from the application of information to solve those problems. I mean, human ingenuity is how we're going to survive if we survive. <laughs> the- right. <laughs> and if we bring all of this back around to being new to the privacy field. There's something for everyone. Yes. No matter what your love may be, what your background may be, history may be, in privacy, if you want to be in the privacy, there's there's an area of a focus no matter what your driving need might be. Follow your passions, choose a niche, get laser focused, find something to apply yourself to that will make a difference and participate. Participate with professionals in the field, whether it's on LinkedIn, largely virtual conferences right now. I start with Dan Solov's Privacy and Security Academy back in the spring. That was an amazing opportunity that I probably wouldn't have had if it weren't for COVID because it was Wasn't it was all awesome? virtual. And uh, it was a great way to you know meet people in the big plenary sessions, but also in the small networking sessions. So the opportunities that these challenges bring to us cannot be over understated or overstated because it gives us opportunities for growth in in privacy as well so it's really cool right i just published an article with the association of corporate counsel about if you want to move into privacy what are some things you can do and i believe last week iapp posted an infographic around the same thing and you just touched on some things it's get active it's attend conferences whether virtually or not it's speak it's write it's Find someone that you admire in privacy and reach out to them. Find several of them and reach out to them. See if you can connect. The worst they can do is not. Try. If you want to speak on a panel, reach out to someone and say, hey, I want to speak on a panel. Find some people that maybe that panel would be accepted because they're recognized and they're experts, and yet they would let you join the panel because you bring that fresh perspective and you bring that energy uh, to it. What else would you recommend for people new to privacy of, of how to get? What I usually tell people other than that is one of the networking. People need to learn how to network. Network is not about what they can do for you. It's what you can do yeah. for them. That's a big, big premise that I stick by. But the other thing is engage in conversation. And that means, in most cases, LinkedIn Follow those conversations that people are posting and offer substantive comments to it. Get your voice out there. And don't be shy about it. Probably don't really want to call the person who originally posted it an idiot <laughs> or anyone else that, that's commenting on it. That's probably a no-go. 
but offer substantive comments. Show that you're intrigued by the issue. You have thoughts on the issue. And yeah, speak up. Be a presence. Speak up. Have some commentary and, and write something. You know, it, it's yeah. it's really it's it's easy. It's but it's easier said than done is what a lot of people find. People tend to be shy and they hide behind that computer screen. So you got to use the tools to your advantage. Go on a podcast. I am an introvert. <laughs> yeah, I am so high on the introvert scale. It blows the scale away. And yet you're hosting a podcast. Yeah, I don't think you're doing so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I think no, but it's, it's true. Don't don't be shy. And if if you do have some some doubts or concerns about you about sharing your initial views, there is always a friendly privacy pro who can reach out to one on one and and ask them for their views before you post something publicly. A second pair of eyes never hurts if you if you write something and want to publish something. Right. And there are lots of. I mean, it is also a very friendly community. Much, even though there's no divas in privacy. <laughs> <laughs> From the moment I set foot in it, it was always very warm and friendly and sometimes a bit family-like. Sometimes there's also the annoying uncle who you don't want to see anymore and who keeps coming to, to talk to you every single time they exist as well. It is like one big happy family. Which is a little bit unusual for a, a profession that's oriented around privacy. And, and secrecy. It so it's kind of an oxymoron in, in and of itself. But I, I don't know. I think that we've got so many great resources. And the place to start, at least for me, has been IAPP with their amazing references out there, with the certifications, yep. with the local knowledge. Their, their entire uh, spring conference is online and available to members now. There's just not enough hours in the day to be involved. And to watch some of these things, to read some of these things, and then to reach out to the people that have written them and say, hey, thank you so much. You know, a measure of gratitude for their input and their participation will take you so far just because people love oh to my be gosh. recognized. Yes. It, it's just, yes. it's common sense. You remember the people that reach out and go, wow, I loved what you wrote. Yeah. That's always nice so. to hear. And on that note, I think we have a great wrap up. So thank you very much, Tom. To our listeners, if you like our series, please do tell your friends and colleagues about us. Subscribe in your favorite podcast application. And should you have any questions or suggestions, if you want to reach out to us, if you want to be on the show next time, please reach out via seriousprivacy at trustart.com or via Twitter at, at podcastprivacy. We are on Instagram now as well at Serious Privacy. And you will find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as Europol B. Thank you again for listening to this episode and until our next episode. Goodbye. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because they're... Deep automation streamlines data privacy governance 
cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions.